0: Welcome to the Loughborough Sportcast, where we seek to bring together the worlds of academia and professional practice. If you're interested in the latest research and trends in the world of sport, and want to hear from experts from around the world, then this is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Martin Foster, Applied Sport Management Lead at Loughborough University. Today, we're here to talk about classification in Paralympic sport. The host for today's podcast is Nick Dyeper, Head of Parasport at Loughborough University, and Deputy Chef de Michonne for Paralympics GB at Tokyo 2020 Paralympic Games. We'll hear Nick discuss the experiences of classification from an athlete's perspective when he talks to a para canoe athlete, Paralympic gold medalist, and six times world champion, Emma Wiggs, MBE. He discusses the rules of classification and the negative headlines often associated with classification with current British Paralympics Association classification manager and retired Paralympian Ian Gowans. And Nick finds out more about the current and future research into classification with Dr. Barry Mason, Senior Research Associate at the Peter Harrison Centre for Disability Sport at Loughborough University. Hello
1: everyone, Uh, my name is Nick Diaper, I'm Head of Parasport at Loughborough University. Um, It's my great pleasure to host what I think is a very exciting podcast today on the subject of classification in Paralympic sport and specifically the importance of of evidence-based classification. I'm delighted today that we've been joined by an, an excellent panel of guests to, to, to join me with the conversation. So uh, before we go any further, let's introduce our, our guests very quickly. Uh, Emma, can we come to you first?
2: Uh, my name is Emma Wiggs and I am a para canoe athlete. I was a sitting volleyball athlete uh, for the London 2012 Games, uh, but won gold in Rio in para canoe and I'm an eight times world champion.
1: Thank you very much, Emma.
3: Ian. Hi, Nick. Yes, I'm Ian Gowdes. I'm the British Paralympic Association's classification manager. I've held that role since 2013. I've been in and around Paralympic sport for a number of years now, including being an athlete back in 1996. So last century, I was a swimmer. I competed in Atlanta in ninety six.
1: Great. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for joining us. Barry?
4: Yeah. Hi, Nick. Uh, So, my name is Barry Mason. I'm a senior researcher at Loughborough University. So, I work for the Peter Harrison Centre for Disability Sport and I've been involved in para research since about 2007, but then since about 2015 onwards, I've been involved in more um, classification-specific projects.
1: Excellent. Thank you Barry uh, and thank you all for, for joining us and, and particularly to you Emma given that I'm sure you're deep in the throes of, of preparation for your final preparation for, for Tokyo so it's, it's great to have athlete representative in, in such an important topic. Um, so we're going to talk about classification in, in Paralympic sport and, and the importance of evidence-based um, classification and um, I guess even for those that are relatively unfamiliar with Paralympic sport they'll recognize that classification is such a fundamental part of of Paralympic sport you know it, it it makes it pretty unique in in that respect um but i would imagine for most people it's it's also a topic that they find either off-putting complicated convoluted mysterious uh, or all of the above really um so maybe just to to kick us off i'm i'm really intrigued to to hear from each one of you just when you hear the word classification what pops into your head um let's start with you Emma
2: Crikey, Nick um, and <laughs> I think it's been such a varied experience, I think horrendous probably comes into my head straight away, um, but equally the, the word essential, um, you know, it is absolutely crucial and fundamental to everything that we're trying to do as para-athletes, that we have a classification system that is robust and, and valid. Um, so I think it's probably a bit odd to have two such controversial words, but I think from an athlete perspective, yeah, I think horrendous and, and uh, essential.
1: Interesting choice of words there, Emma. Ian, what what about you? What pops in your head when you hear the word classification?
3: Uh, I'd add is essential um, and, and unique. Uh, you can't have uh, a Paralympic Games, a Paralympic sport without classification, but it's something that, like, in the British Olympic Association, I don't have a classification counterpart, so it's unique to Paralympic sport. It's very much ours. Uh, we own it, uh, and we need it, and we need it to, to, to work. We need it to evolve and develop. And Barry?
4: Yeah, I think the immediate things that pop into mind are, you know, fair competition, inclusion, participation, those types of things. But I think when you dig a little bit deeper, it's things like stress and anxiety that that definitely features probably from an athlete perspective uh, more so than anybody.
1: So that, that sense of emotion, uh, the emotive response is coming across quite quite clearly there. Um, and, and Ian, I think let, let's come back to you, because I think um, maybe for those who are less familiar with classification, can you just give us a a, a kind of a very brief summary of um, what is classification and why is it so important?
3: Classification is a structure for competition. And um, so it defines who can and who cannot compete in Paralympic sport, uh, and then it once it's decided who can compete in Paralympic sport, it separates those athletes out into classes, groups of athletes that's, who compete against each other. So already, just from that sentence alone, you can see how impactful it is. So the, one of the first things classf- classification does is says, yes, Emma can compete in in, in para but other athletes with disabilities, some, some of them cannot compete in in, in, in para canoe. So again. Right off the bat, it's going to be very, very emotive for those athletes who are outside of the sport and outside of the Paralympic sport. Uh, and then it also shapes who Emma competes against. Um, so, again, that's hugely impactful. Um, it, it, it determines who are Emma's rivals in her sport. And Emma, if I can come to you, because you, you,
1: you touched on it earlier, like, why is it so important for you from an athlete perspective, the, the whole classification piece?
2: I think Nick, because it is absolutely essential to creating a as, as level a playing field as we can. Um, you know, whilst also understanding and, and acknowledging that everyone is is coming into para sport with a completely different set of um, abilities, and therefore it's really challenging. And I think to you know, you have to learn to accept that as a para athlete that this these are the these are the confine, confinements of para sport. And therefore, we have to understand that and accept that, and then and then move on with it. So for me, the classification is is always going to have boundaries, and sometimes you're going to fall at the top of that boundary. Sometimes you're going to fall in the middle. Sometimes you're going to fall at the bottom, and that again is a, is a very emotive emotional situation. You know, in para canoe, for example, you can have people with no with no glute function or leg function competing against people with with one leg, um, or 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 st- or two amputations and and glute function. So it's a very, very um, challenging set of circumstances, but it is absolutely essential that the process of classification is therefore, you know, fundamentally driven on evidence and research um, and, you know, medical diagnosis and things to allow it to be as fair as possible. Um, But there's still some challenges challenges within that. But absolutely for me as an athlete, uh, the process I've seen evolve over over my time in Paris sport, um, in a very very positive way, to hopefully provide us with the credibility to then go and lay down these performances, so that the public understand and there is that credible um, recognition of you know this is this is this is like for like competing in as in as fair a, as fair as possible situation.
1: And, and Barry, if we can come to you from from an academic or a research point of view, what what are your thoughts, kind of initially, on on classification? Like, how how do you see classification from from an academic standpoint?
4: Yeah. So from our perspective, we kind of have to just be as impartial as possible with the whole process, because, I guess, from an academic perspective, we just focused on the evidence-based element of classification. And I guess that's where we're kind of central, really, to helping sports provide that layer of, of evidence, really, to kind of back up and support their systems. So that's kind of the angle at which we would approach things from. So we'll, we'll
1: we'll come back to that theme in in a moment. But but Ian, coming coming back to you, sounds like there's a lot of rules surrounding classification, and and I dare say probably a, a few grey areas, but who's responsible for for the governance of of classification just just briefly.
3: It's a good question the IPC the International Paralympic Committee is a glo- is the global governing body of the Paralympic movement. So just like the IOC the International Olympic Committee um is the global governing body for Olympic sport the IPC which is based in Bonn is the global, global governing body for the Paralympic movement. So in, th- th- in the in 2007 it established a a classification code. So prior to that, there wasn't anything across sport um, that was um, guiding international federations of, of what they should and shouldn't do within classification. Um, so the IPC established a, a code, that similar in intention to the WADA code, trying to standardise harmonised practices as much as possible. But within that framework, there was still a lot of scope for um, the classification rules specific to that sport. So when Emma was competing as a volleyball player. The structure for classification in that sport look different to this sport avenue. Um, yeah, so like I said, the IPC governs and standardises uh, paralympic sport, but the sports have their own rules as well. Uh, and as an NPC, we're a voting member of the IPC, so it's a very global organisation. The international federations get a vote and vote on the on the wording of the codes, uh, and the, the 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 nations also get that vote as well. Thanks, Ian. Um, Emma, let
1: let's come to you because um, I think lots of people listening will be intrigued to know what from an athlete perspective what's it like to actually be (laughs) classified and and Ian obviously you you mentioned your own athletic career so it'd be fascinating just to hear from from two athlete perspectives as to what it is actually like to undergo the process of classification but let's start with Emma.
2: And I, I think, Nick, it's it's really important for, to recognize that every athlete deals with it differently. Um, I have always found the process of classification uh, incredibly stressful and emotional. And I think it's because when you have a disability, you spend a lot of your your time and your energy and your life trying to show what you can do uh, despite your disability. And classification is the complete opposite of that. It is, it is really them highlighting what you can't do. Um, and I have always found that an incredibly emotional process to go through and then if if you think about the fact that when you go through these classifications you are at an international competition so you're at the point that you've been preparing for all year and then you're you're having to go through a very necessary and absolutely essential but very very stressful and emotional day some, normally or part of a day uh, in order to get through get through that process um, so it's a really tricky one because I don't think necessarily it needs to be as, as stressful and as emotional as it is, but I think it is always going to have that element because it is actually highlighting things that you can't do um, and, and therefore that's what puts you in this category or or in this category. So I think maybe some people deal with it really well, I think I often found it incredibly stressful. So to be able to now know that we've got a, a really robust, um, really evidence-based system in place. Um, It means that we don't have to go through it all the time because we've been through it and and provided the the information to get that confirmed status. So it's a a pressure off, but equally it's an evolving system. Um, But certainly I've seen it progress hugely and I've seen the classifiers understanding of of what it's like to go through it improve. So maybe at the start when... um, I, I used to cry every time yeah, and I couldn't help it it was just this emotional response and you could see the the look of shock on their faces and you know, as they're picking up your legs and letting them drop to the table you know you can you could see how shocked they were that you were crying and I used to then Eventually go in and say, right, look, I'm going to cry. Just ignore it. Let's crack on and get it done. And I saw that their understanding evolve as the as the system is involved. And I think now it is in, in much certainly in Paracanoe it's in a much better place where I think it probably is less stressful um, for the actual athletes involved, because there's a greater understanding of of actually how that process can can impact you from a mental health perspective as well.
1: And obviously, a para canoe, you know, a relatively new addition to the Paralympic program, Rio 2016, the first time it, it was included. So I guess we should we should expect the classification system to, to be evolving as we go. But just tell us a bit more, Emma, what what the actual process involves from a para canoe perspective.
2: Yeah, you're right, Nick. We are a newish sport, but I actually believe, from my experience, certainly, we've got one of the most robust classification systems that, that there is out there you know we've, we've done a huge amount of evidence-based research to, to try and produce this system so we have a, a medical classification and we have a technical on water classification um, and normally one follows the other um, and it is a you know it's quite a lengthy process it's probably an hour on the medical and an hour or half an hour on the water um, and then they also look at it in race So people have to do certain certain situations and certain skills and um, perform things at speed and they're videoed and watched by classifiers on the water and then they they also video and watch you in a race situation so that then gives them an idea of of how you're performing you know in your test compared to how you're performing in a competition. So it's got lots of from my point of view it's got lots of fail safes in there to to be able to highlight if maybe they've got something wrong and I and I've seen that evolve over the years you know I've um, I've lost two European gold medals to, to classification um, hiccups, shall we say. And the classifiers have then held their hands up and say, look, we've got this wrong. We need to tweak this, this and this. And that's what you go through when you're when you're evolving as a new sport. But but certainly the process now with the medical and the the technical and that's done at a national level and an international level, um, I think gives it gives it the credibility and uh, and consistency, I think, that, that, that it deserves.
1: And Ian, just before we bring Barry back in. If you can remember back to your competition days, what what do you, do you did you have a similar experience to to Emma in terms of just how emotional the process was, or what what were your experiences?
3: Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely recognise myself what what Emma went through. Um, I've got cerebral palsy, so my my impairment from birth, uh, and I've got quite high muscle tones. I've got lots of spasm and and, and tension and on, on one side of my body, uh, and as a consequence of that, I was in and out of medical facilities and hospitals fairly regularly as a child, Um, so I was very used to being told and prodded by physios, but the classification that I experienced back in '94 uh, is is still quite distinct to my memory, because it was the only time on a physio bench I was asked repeatedly to flex my right foot, uh, and I was trying really hard to flex my right foot and it wouldn't move at all. Um, I I knew I couldn't move it, but I hadn't really interrogated that or thought about it, nobody ever asked me repeatedly to do it. Yeah, so Emma's right. You have to, in classification, really capture and focus on what the athlete will never be able to do. And that's very counterintuitive because everything else in Paralympic sport is get these athletes to go as fast, as hard, as, as as effective in the sport as they can. But for that moment of classification, you'll have to measure and capture and write down and confirm with the athlete what, what they will never be able to do. So, so it, is, it, is, it is a hugely emotional uh, ex, um, experience for the athlete to go through. Well,
1: th- thanks to both of you for being kind of so open and honest on that. I, I think it might come as a surprise to many people just, you know, how emotive that, that experience is for, for athletes. So we, we do appreciate your your candidness. Um, so, Barry, we've heard evidence-based classification mentioned multiple times already just, just in the brief chat we've had. What is evidence-based classification and, and, and why do we need it?
4: Yeah, so evidence-based classification simply means that sports classification systems and how they allocate athletes into um, specific classes, it needs to be underpinned by some form of empirical evidence so that it's effectively meeting its stated purpose. And the stated purpose of classification is to effectively make sure that we're minimizing the impact of impairment on the outcomes of performance. So it's that layer of evidence, really, that's required to underpin systems. And that's effectively where research starts to enter into the fray. Um, You need it simply because certain systems might be reliant too much on subjective information. And when that's the case, some individual athletes might end up becoming disadvantaged compared to others. Um, And when it's also subjective, you do leave yourself open to having your classification contested and that obviously brings with it uh, a lot of problems at international competitions. So it's just there to kind of objectify the whole process really. And Ian from
1: a, a, an NPC perspective or from a governance perspective like why do you feel class, uh, evidence-based classification is so important? It was
3: Barry quite succinctly put it there, yeah, the purpose of classification is to minimise the impact of impairment on the outcome of competition. So we need to have a really good understanding of of how impairment affects competition. And we are just on the start of this journey, to be honest, in terms of having the, the evidence in place. Uh, probably the best example where you, where you see this is in uh, vision-impaired sports. So those classes within vision-impaired sports. There is a minimum improvement criteria. Uh, that is it. That, that is in vision impaired sports. Um, the classes are progressive. So B three, uh, you're 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 mildly affected. B two, you're much more affected than B one. You're essentially you can't see anything at all. But it's not designed to be used on the field of play as such. It's just B three is not as bad as B one. Uh, so you could be a downhill skier following your guide down a ski slope or you could be a 100-metre runner running in a straight line, but you're both B3, so that doesn't take into account light conditions, uh, running around bends, snow, whether you um, use um, your both eyes at the same time, whether you shot one eye. Uh, so in 2013, recognising this uh, issue within Paralympic sport, the IPC established uh, some research centres to harness and drive classification uh, research forward. So uh, Emma's sport of can really benefits from that sort of work as a new sport, as, as you've already pointed out. Um, taekwondo as well uh, has quite a lot of published research, as has uh, badminton um, as well. So the newer sports, but in Paralympic sport, have, have a lot of published research around them. Uh, intellectual impairment also has a lot of published research around them. If you ha- have a quick Google of Paralympic scandals, then the intellectual impairment scandal of 2000 is Always top of the list. Uh, they, they, they found a, a Spanish basketball team uh, at the Sydney Games had been falsifying their paperwork and getting through the system. So, for for that reason, uh, the intellectual impairment was removed as an as an eligible impairment within the Paralympic sport. And they spent the, the following uh, eight to nine years researching how to make classification um, uh, specific to. Intellectual impairment, how do you prove they've they've got an impairment in the first place? And how does that impairment actually affect them in the field of play? So it's not not enough just to say, yes, this athlete has an IQ of below uh, a a certain amount. It has to be, and this affects them in this way, which is why when you see intellectual impairment in athletics, there's no 100-meter runners. It's all distance events, because pacing is a critical part of intellectual impairment. And it's all technical events, such as um, uh, long jump as well. Um, yeah, so like I said, we're just at the start of this journey, and it's, and and it's a it's a journey without an end as well. Uh, we'll we'll always be tinkering and improving with with classification. I always say, and compare classification rules to, to not dissimilar to rugby rules. Every time you watch the Six Nations, there's always a slight tweak from the last year, in whether to make it safer for the players or make it better to watch or, or easier to understand. So this journey that we're on in terms of evidence-based classification. Uh, mean end so parties in a very good line of work.
1: And and Ian, you, you mentioned yourself kind of the, the term scandal um when it comes to, to classification. And and I guess, you know, for anyone who does follow para- Paralympic sport, and even for those who are who are kind of casual observers, there's been some very negative headlines when it comes to, to classification in, in the international media over the last four four to six years. Do, do you feel that evidence-based classification will kind of take us into a, a, a place where those those headlines are, are less kind of negative or, or, or sensationalised? Because maybe one of the issues at the moment is the lack of evidence-based classification does me, it's, mean it's subject to all sorts of um,
3: uh, negative press? Uh, that'd be one element of it. Yeah, I think if we could stand over why the minimum improvement criteria for a certain sport is where it is, with published research that's been peer-reviewed, uh, then that's definitely an easier an easier argument to have than just it's always been like this or this is what we think it is. Um, however, for me, there's there's certain things that get picked up on in classification that evidence based on its own will not be able to to address. Um, no matter how scientific the the system is and how how evidence based it is, you will always have a range of impairments in each class. So when you first come to Paralympic sport, you will see um, athletes competing against each other, who all look slightly different, who all who all have slightly different uh, levels of impairment, um, and that initially can, can be quite difficult to get your head around. Um, and it's as we've said said it all along, it's it's um, it's hugely emotive. So that emotive nature of uh, classification will not go away with evidence based. Uh, and it's also very easy for people when they see an athlete win by a large distance, uh, that they are they're benefiting from the classification system rather than think that athlete is just a really, really good athlete and is just naturally much better than the other athletes that, that, that they're competing against. Yeah, so we definitely need more evidence-based classification system, but the education around classification, both within Paralympic sport and to the general public, needs to improve as well, so we have less um, less controversy. Having said that, though, it's a bit like anti-doping. Like, there's brilliant work that goes on in anti-doping around the world, whether that's the actual WADA code itself uh, I think it's broken records in terms of how many governments have actually signed up to it. There's loads of like groundbreaking research in anti-doping. And there's loads of brilliant education in anti-doping. But you only ever hear it in the mainstream press when somebody does a uh, an, a rule violation of test positive or countries get banned. So it's just one of those things that it will only hit the press when it goes wrong. Um, you won't hear about the hundreds of athletes that go through it and it works fine for them.
1: And and Emma, how, from an athlete perspective, and and as a as an athlete looking to defend her Paralympic title in Tokyo, how how does it make you feel when you see some of those kind of negative headlines around classification in 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 the media?
2: Yeah, I think it's really hard, Nick, and I think it's a really interesting point that Ian made around the anti doping because I was actually going to say the same sort of thing. I think we we with classification are probably where anti doping was, you know, maybe five six years ago, and I think it's it is you know people are always some people are always going to find a way of pushing the system and uh, and cheating and it's re- it's a real shame that those are the ones that that make the headlines um i think for me i feel um i feel really confident particularly within my sport i've seen the work that's gone on i've seen the development from the early days into kind of 2013 through to now to to give me the confidence that we have got a robust uh system i think it will improve when we get more athletes because i think when you've got a small number of athletes you have to have big classes to give you the field so therefore you are you know for example in in one of the classes uh it's quite a wide class. I think there's seven six or seven points between people now that's a huge range of of disabilities so when we get more people involved in para sports we will then be able to have this better robust classification system which will then split people into into more equal classes in terms of their their ability to compete and deliver but absolutely i agree with ian you know you you can't just look at face value and think well that person's won by two and a half seconds therefore they must be in the wrong class you've got to look at the athlete themselves and the work that they're doing because we spend every single day of our lives trying to make the bits of us that work better and therefore you know particularly in great britain we've got the world's leading para canoe team we are pushing boundaries all the time we are setting new world records in every class all the time and that is because of the the training and stuff that goes into maximizing what we've got to be able to deliver in in those events so you know i feel proud really that, that i'm in a sport that has been able to to develop that process um, but equally you know i'm proud of the fact that irrespective of where i fall in my class which is near the bottom in one of them and near the top in the other that's just the way it works. Um, I'm still able to compete and deliver against, you know, so-called more able athletes. So I think it should hopefully give give all athletes a um, you know, confidence that it is what it's what you do with what you've got that makes a difference. Not necessarily um, write yourself off because you're you might fall lower in the class.
1: So it's becoming very clear that, you know, evidence based classification is kind of critical to the credibility of of the Paralympic kind of movement going forward. And, and Barry Um, No no pressure on on you or or kind of the the academic uh, elements of of, of research. But it it feels like there's there's some key opportunities here and and a a key, uh, I guess, responsibility or certainly role that research can play in moving us towards uh, a better position. So could you just tell us a bit more about um, what type of evidence based classification is currently taking place at, at Loughborough?
4: Yeah, so currently we're only really involved at the moment with uh, a project with the IWBF, so I'm sure you're probably aware of all what's been going on in wheelchair basketball, um, with them temporarily I think being removed from the Paris 2024 games. So the IPC kind of um, dictated to them that they need to come up with and establish some minimum impairment criteria, So that's a project that we've got going on at the moment with the International Wheelchair Basketball Federation to try and help that sport um, establish some minimum impairment criteria, hopefully so that they can be reinstated for Paris 2024. Um, That's kind of the, the aim and objective of that one. Other than that, historically, um, we have been involved, I guess, with um, the Paravar, some of the Paravar, the early work that went into Paravar um, back in 2015, which was an interesting one because that was all quite uh, last minute, really. I think, if I remember rightly, and Emma will be able to correct me if this isn't right. I think Parakayak was on the programme for Rio 2016, um, but I think the ICF... Um, and this Swedish research group that we were working with um, were really trying to make sure that Parabar could also be part of the programme. So they were looking to quickly collect some data and information um, to see if we could create a system for Parabar to then be considered eligible by the IPC. Uh, unfortunately, that was a little bit too much to ask with those timelines. So, So that one wasn't actually possible but then yeah since then at the phc we've been probably most heavily involved in classification research with the sport of wheelchair rugby that's something that's been kind of ongoing throughout the last maybe four or five years and
1: emma because you were presumably one of the participants or one of the individuals who was part of the research for for the para canoe stuff do you want to just give us a a feel for kind of what involvement you had as an athlete
2: yeah and i think you know i'm eternally grateful to barry and the team of of at loughborough who managed to get the research done and and added such value to this process because um i was what i was actually one of the athletes that was in a kayak originally from rio then they changed it to var and then the var got scrapped and put back to to the kayak so it was a real you know up and down process um but i'm also one of the athletes that will be hopefully benefiting in just under 150 days time in tokyo where the var and the kayak will both be eligible boats so we were very fortunate as a gb squad we were given uh, the opportunity to work with loughborough and to work with the international classifiers and, and to go to sweden to to do some testing and we really bought into that because we could see the value to to try and provide this evidence for them then to to completely re- rejig uh the classification process and as a result of the efforts of of I think the GB squad and UK Sport and Loughborough in in getting that research to happen it it created a a new a new system um and actually a a, a more level playing field um and a and certainly a more credible one to which you know they could go to the IPC and and get this VAR included into the Paralympic Games which is actually a monumental uh, achievement in a in a time where potentially Elite sport is is facing some real struggles to try and maintain its position, so I think I feel incredibly fortunate and lucky to have been part of that and It was an interesting process too you know i 'm a bit of a geek and I quite like the uh the research side of things so to go and to be able to to be part of something with with such a biomechanical type um, analysis was really interesting to me and also gave me as an athlete some real belief that th- this classification system that they were going to develop was going to be fundamentally fairer and and more accurate and ultimately that's what any anyone who c- takes part in parasport wants
1: um and barry can we can we come back to you just a bit more insight into the wheelchair basketball work like who who's involved in that project and and what's the actual essence of you know what does the actual research itself entail
4: yeah so um it's an interesting one so that it, it obviously came through the ipc to the IW, iwbf Um, stipulating what they needed to do and that was to create minimum impairment criteria. Um, The IWBF then reached out to us at Loughborough because we've obviously been involved with a few other international federations trying to help them work towards evidence-based classification. So they reached out to us to try and kind of lead the process um, that was needed for them and it was a tricky one because the minimum impairment criteria is usually the the step that's developed towards the end. So there's like five step process usually for research in uh, classification and minimum impairment criteria is usually the last one um, in an ideal world. But they obviously were under pressure to create this um, sooner rather than later. So what we've had to do is we've had to adopt what's known as a Delphi study. So you're looking to just gain expert consensus from individuals in and around the sport about what they think their um, minimum impairment criteria should look like for athletes to be eligible to participate in the sport. Obviously, you would rather do that by collecting some kind of objective scientific data, but with the timeline that they were under, Um, expert consensus is kind of seen as a an acceptable alternative so we're kind of still in the middle of the process of that at the moment and it will start to um, unfold later on in the year hopefully.
1: And in your experience Barry what have you found as some of the challenges of doing research in in this field?
4: Yeah well there's there's quite a few so I think Ian's already touched on maybe one or two of them I think time is is a big big challenge To do everything um, properly, it's a very, very time consuming process from start to finish, if there even is a finish. I would say cost as well, because it's research, all research requires funding. Um, There's not a huge number of avenues out there for funding in kind of Paralympic classification, so to speak. Um, We've been fortunate once, maybe with a, a small grant from the IPC, but the IPC can't fund projects in in all Paralympic sports. Uh, It's a bit of a challenge as well for some of the international federations to really support it to some extent. So being able to acquire funds to do the research is a a big one. And then sample size, um, that was the downfall really with the, the Paravar project in the first instance was trying to get enough people Um, to prove that your evidence is robust effectively um, and that the IPC are are satisfied with. Um, From my experience, it's always been quite easy within um, the UK. GB athletes are always very, very um, proactive with engaging in classification-based research, but it can be a challenge sometimes to engage uh, international athletes. Uh, it's OK if you've got the backing and the support of the International Federation who are actively trying to promote the research, uh, which we've been fortunate enough with on this wheelchair basketball project and as well on some of the, the wheelchair rugby projects. But when you haven't had that kind of push from the International Federation, it's a real challenge to, to get athletes to engage with the process sometimes.
2: Barry, on that, do you think, I'm just trying to find solutions in this, so i you know the obvious thing would be at an international competition you know athletes are asked to take part in the research when they're there but as an athlete sitting here I'm thinking are you kidding me that's the last thing I want to do as I'm preparing for a world championships or a European championships but I wonder whether there's anything that could be done to attach it to an international competition that would not affect the competition but equally give you guys the research because that is your prime time isn't it because it's you know or even even the games even at the, the games, but then obviously not this year but it's I don't know I just think there must be a better solution than, than trying to find countries that can suddenly pop to Sweden for a weekend or
4: yeah definitely that's not an ideal scenario at all, is it I think and and doing it at the competitions as well it's not ideal because the last thing researchers want to do is trying to almost interfere with athletes when they're in that preparation phase for some huge competitions. It's almost trying to strike the balance though between the opportunity alongside the cost, because at competitions you obviously always have lots of athletes from lots of different nations all in one place at the same time. So that kind of reduces the cost. Whereas if we were to try and, I don't know, collect data from athletes at training camps and things like that, it's more travel involved, more convenient for the athletes probably, so I don't know the solution. There could well be something in the future where we go towards classification centres where athletes maybe have to come into perhaps a university for classification specific purposes. Maybe that might work um, slightly better.
1: Some really interesting uh, insights there from from you, Barry, and uh, and, and a great question from, from Emma there, because I guess for, for many people who have been involved with research that involves, you know, athletes themselves, there's always, there's always some, some challenges that that, that throws up. And, and I think worth us noting that um, some of the other research that uh, Loughborough is undertaking around uh, evidence-based classification within visually impaired sports and specifically around in the sport of, of goalball. Um, Ian, I know you've been kind of involved in, in some of the, the the early stages of that or certainly helping to, to facilitate that, that research in the first place. Do, do you want to just tell us a little bit about that and where
3: you hope that project will go? Yeah, similar to what I said earlier about um, the the current state of, the current status of vision impairment um, classification for athletes with a vision impairment. Um, yeah, goalball is in a similar position to all those other sports that I mentioned, but they've got a B1, B2, B3 eligibility criteria. Uh, all athletes compete um, as long as they've got at least a B3 classification against each other and they wear eye masks um, to, 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 to establish a, a, a level of, of lack of sight that's, that's, that's the same for everyone on court. Uh, however, like I've said, though, that doesn't really take into account different uh, people's vision. It doesn't really make sure that there is um, athletes with a more severe impairment coming into the sport. Um, so hopefully with a very long-term project We'll be able to establish a minimum impairment criteria that is relevant to, to to the sport of goalball, which is a sport that's exclusively for athletes with a vision impairment, it's something that's a bit more relevant to, to to them on the on the field of play.
1: And, and just staying with you for
3: a, a while longer,
1: Ian. Um, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago. IPC announced a, a three-year review process of the classification code. Um you just tell us a little bit about what that actually means and um, what role do you feel
3: evidence-based classification will play in, in, in the review of the code? Yeah, as we're talking now, it's the end of, um, end of March 21. And, yeah, as you say, recently the IPC announced the, the code review process and the code review drafting team but its a athlete classification code. Um, like I said earlier, the first code came out in 2007, that was then consulted on and published a revised code in 2015. But the IPC now feels that there's been enough evolution within Paralympic sport to go and do that again. And like I said, classification needs to keep evolving anyway. So I would imagine that in 10 years' time, we'll be looking at, at this at, at the very least again in terms of, the, of the process. So they've, the IPC have assembled a multi-discipline, multi-nation team to support the drafting process. There will be three rounds of consultation where they will ask for submissions, both from inside the Paralympic movement, so National Paralympic Committees like ourselves, but also international federations, um, international disability sport organisations. But anybody with uh, interest in Paralympic sport can submit uh, um, um, thoughts on the code itself and what needs to be in the code. Uh, they will also publish during those three rounds of of a consultation uh, draft versions of the codes uh, and international standards. And again, uh, the Paralympic movement and any any organisation or individual interested in the Paralympic movement can make submissions on that. So we're looking for a, to, to get the IPC's General Assembly to sign off on a new code uh, just before the Paris Games in 2024. However, it won't kick in until after the Paris Games for the start of the, the Los Angeles cycle in 2028. So
1: some interesting times ahead, no doubt, for for classification, especially when when codes are being being reviewed and um, no doubt an, an interesting journey to, to go on. Um, I guess to, to bring us to a close, I'd be fascinated just to get each of your views on where you see things going in the future of, of evidence based classification in, in particular or, or what you'd like to see. Um, Emma, I wonder if we can come to you first on on that particular uh, perspective from from an athlete perspective. Like, what what would, where do you think things will go, and and what would you like to see?
2: Yeah, I think I think it's going in a, in a hugely positive way, Nick. I think we're moving in a in in into a future where hopefully it will be evidence based. It will have research to back it up. Like the boys have already said. I think for me, from an athlete perspective, I would like to think that. Athletes that have been through the process and are currently in the process could share those experiences with other athletes. I think it's really, really important for, for athletes that have had positive experiences because despite the fact I might find it, you know, emotional and challenging and, and cry, it, I have found it positive as well because I've got through it and, um, you know it's given me sport has given me so much and i have to just accept that classification is a ne- necessary part of that and i think i'd love to see athletes sharing their experiences sharing their thoughts and sharing their feedback in an open way i think it's similar like like ian said to anti-doping there's sometimes a reluctance to talk about to talk about it and share it because it is that you know slightly emotive topic and i would like to think that current athletes could do that and share that with with younger athletes. And also I think athletes that have retired, I feel like sport has given us so much. And so when retirement comes and knocks on the door, I feel like what could we give back? We must be able to give back something in terms of classification, research or feedback or, or positivity or something um, and I think that would be something really useful to pursue as well.
1: There's some very interesting thoughts there Emma, I mean I, I, I really like your, your idea around how athletes can contribute to, to research in, in this in the future and even just listening to both yours and Ian's experiences of that emotive element of it is perhaps something that really hasn't been been captured from an academic viewpoint and actually um, how how that the athlete experience itself can be made better so that it you know we we don't have people crying in in, in the classification yeah. process and um thank you for not crying on us so far I, conscious, conscious, <laughs> you know, think, we're not done yet though
2: uh, <laughs> no no but i think also that you're, you're so right i think there's other elements to understand but equally if we if we share those if we can't share those experiences within our own sports then no one's going to be sharing them wider than that, are they? So I think, you know, we need to be better as athletes to, to share it with, with others that are going through it and say, look, OK, it's OK if you feel like this. You might feel like this. This is what it looks like. This is what's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. And be really collaborative on that on that approach and, and, and recognize that it's OK to to feel about it in different ways. But absolutely. Yeah, I think uh, less emotion and more more positivity would be great.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Barry, what about you? Where where, do you, where would you like to see things go, or, or where do you think they will go from a, a research point of view?
4: I think from a research point of view, it's quite difficult to try and predict where things might go. I think it's fairly clearly mapped out from a research perspective where we still need to go before we can kind of predict where we might need to take it in the future. Um, you know, th- this three-year review period it actually gives us uh, a nice bit of time to really just keep adding evidence behind tests of impairment for sports, how we quantify and how we measure their performance. So regardless of what comes out of the three-year review process, um, it's valuable time really to kind of add a lot more evidence um, to the sports. I think one of the biggest challenges moving forward from a research perspective will probably be to Establish more around intentional misrepresentation and, and how we can actually identify that. Uh, there's little bits of research starting to emerge on that, but I think that's going to be a big area for research in the future to really try and um, identify what that looks like.
1: And, and Ian, I guess um, maybe the last word over to to you from um, from a, the perspective of a national Paralympic committee. Where where do you where do you see the
3: future going? We definitely need um, evidence-based research to continue. We also need it to be implemented uh, in some sports. There's, there's quite a, a lot of good research done, but the International Federations have, have yet to uh, put them into actual rule changes. Um, I'm keeping an eye out for for, for judo. The International Federation um, for judo is going to be amongst the first long-standing Paralympic sports to implement a new system based on research, uh, and that's always quite a choppy Uh, thing to navigate for athletes because as soon as you move that minimum impairment criteria if it if it if it goes too high then people towards the bottom of that class feel excluded but if you move it down then you're 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 potentially kicking athletes out of the sport that have been in the sport for a while Um, so i would expect that to continue throughout the Paris and LA cycles as IFs implement the evidence-based research and when you implement that sort of um, work um, you will have uh, consequences that, that you did expect, but also consequences that, that you didn't e- expect. So again, we'll be coming back to the likes of uh, to, to Barry and his colleagues to, to to do the research again, as as our, as our understanding of, um, of 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 the impact of the impairment on the out- of outcome of competition con- c- continues to to evolve and improve. Um, and from an a, a, an athlete's perspective of Classification, I think the whole education piece around classification needs to evolve more. Um, as an NPC, the British Parliament Association have stepped up our education post real. Uh, we've got some nice tools. We've got a, a very nice three-minute video that explains everything very succinctly uh, on our website, on our YouTube channel. Uh, and we've got some, some other good initiatives in the education space, but that needs to uh, bed in. It needs to win hearts and minds of people with long-standing uh, negative opinions and experiences of classification, and we need the wider Paralympic movement around the world to also adopt and drive ahead with uh, with with athlete education. But I like a lot Emma's uh, chat about using experienced athletes uh, to 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 to, to not just bring through the the less experienced athletes as well, and get everyone talking about classification in a positive, constructive fashion, even though it's a bit emotional to go through. Uh, I liken it too, as well as that, as a double control. It's a bit like. Um, a job interview, or going to the dentist, or even going through security at an airport—it's something that's essential that you have to do, but it doesn't mean to say you're going to enjoy it. Well,
1: Ian, Barry, Emma—massive um, thank you to to the three of you for for your insights and and sharing your your expertise. That that's been a a fascinating, albeit brief journey through through classification and and exploring you know the the rationale for for evidence-based classification and, and why it's important. Um, Emma. Very best of wishes and and good luck for your final preparation for for Tokyo. We'll we'll, we'll be with you all the way. And it's um it's certainly been a, a real pleasure to for for me to host this and um to kind of get your perspectives of what classification means to to the three of you I guess as key stakeholders in in the process. So the athlete voice and the athlete perspective, which is which is paramount to the whole thing, the the NPC perspective in terms of the governance and and ensuring things move forward and 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 develop and then. Barry from, from uh, a research point of view and, and to hear all the good work that, that Loughborough is doing particularly in this space of of classification so um, many thanks to the tr- three of you for, for your time uh, it's been a, a really um, enjoyable process listening to, to you guys and certainly
0: I hope uh, everyone has taken
1: something away from that Thanks
2: Nick Thanks Nick
0: Cheers Nick Thanks for listening to the Loughborough Sportcast If you want to get in touch and let us know any subject areas or experts that you'd be keen to listen to then contact me, Martin Foster, on m.foster at alborough.ac.uk or tweet me at martinfoster82. Bye for now. We'll see you next time.